This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, uh, might as well just let the world traveler start this episode letting us know how the world traveling has been let's hear it world traveling i really wanted to do a french accent and I, can't. <laughs> I just can't i i've been surrounded by them for a week yeah a week plus it was like eight days i can't do it um That's but yeah no it, it was it was really good it's it's really interesting if i'm a little more talkative today now you guys know because some of you might know some of you might not i went by myself to paris for a week um which is awesome and yeah which is great and i love i love vacationing by yourself if you feel comfortable doing that and you have the opportunity i can't recommend it enough um, especially in another country like that where you don't speak the language a it, it really forces you to understand how you are communicating with others and how you are going about communicating with others um you know paris is a big city a lot of people speak english a little bit of English, like they'll they'll know basically what you're ordering. If you say steak, they know to get get you a steak, um, and they'll understand hello and yes and no and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you have to be very pleasant about it. You can't don't be that person demanding this, that, and the other thing because otherwise they're just going to say I don't understand. And so not only that, but also you're surrounded by people speaking French, so you don't have to worry at all if they're saying anything about you. Doesn't matter. Because they are. They are, but you can't understand them anyways. So (laughs) it just leaves you alone to your own thoughts, and it just allowed me to be very introspective for a week, um, but also allowed me to not say much at all. So I feel like when I called my parents afterwards, I talked to them for like an hour just because I'm like, yeah, this happened and this happened and this happened because I just had so many words stored in me, and they're slowly slipping out, but – uh, it's still there where I, I I have like a week's full of words that I just did not use. And uh, I'm not normally like an overly talkative person, but that definitely happens after vacation. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm really glad I did it. Can't recommend Paris enough. Um, it's it's really cool just to be around old stuff for a very long time. Um, going to Versailles was really neat. Um, got to check out the beaches of Normandy, which just filled in a lot of gaps about my own personal knowledge about everything that happened up there. Uh and, you know, other touristy things, going to the top of the Eiffel Tower, it's really cool, um, stuff like that. So happy to be back, though. Happy to be uh, back with you, Tyler, talking with you again and uh, with everybody else who who uh, listens out there and has reached out and all that kind of stuff in, in the time since we last potted, which we do have an actual reader question or reader listener question this week, which is fun. And we would love to get to it, but after that, we have run out of time. So it's been great episode number <laughs> one hundred. No, just kidding. Episode one thirty four is here. Sam is back on uh, on terra firma. I guess that doesn't really make sense because it's terra firma over there too. But uh, back home, at, you know, whatever. I would um, love to do that one year. Just go to space. Yeah, that'd be Sam's cool. Back on terra firma after being in space for a week. <laughs> that would be a very 
uh, a, a much more unique vacation, I guess, than any of us have ever had. Um, let me know if you get to go. I'll, I'll try to book a ticket and do that with you. Um, I, mean, I would want you as my co-pilot in the yeah, space. Yeah, that works. Uh, that yeah, sounds fantastic. Virgin Space or whatever. What is it? Yeah. Virgin Galactic? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Sure. Us and Richard Branson. We can all hang out. Should make sense. Elon Musk, I'm sure, will be there. You know. It's, uh, <laughs> that, it's, the, it's the like a normal meetings. cocktail party for yeah, us. The ISS every week. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... Uh, the band's back together for episode number 134 of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. He is Sam Dykstra and I am Tyler Mon, and we thank you for tuning in wherever you found the minor league baseball podcast. We're at MILB.com slash podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, the Stitcher app, and wherever else you get your podcasts and give us a rating and a review and a subscription wherever you find us, if you would be so kind. And um, we would very much appreciate it. We've got a lot coming up on the show today. Kansas City Royals first-round draft selection and top prospect, according to MLB Pipeline. Nick Prado will join the show coming up here in just a little bit, and we'll talk with Benjamin Hill coming up later as well. Um, unfortunately, we opened three strikes this week on a somber note with the passing of uh, Major League Baseball two-time Cy Young Award winner and eight-time All-Star Roy Halladay, who was killed in a single plane crash on Tuesday. We're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, Roy Halladay dying on uh, Tuesday, November 7th at just 40 years old when his plane crashed off the west coast of Florida. Roy Halladay really was a rare breed in Major League Baseball in recent years in that every time he took the ball, you felt like you were going to see something special. And when he took the ball, you felt like you were going to see him out there for a long time. He was a workhorse guy. He was kind of a generational talent in that regard. Over the course of his career, Roy Halladay threw 67 complete games. That's 30 more than any other pitcher did over the time frame of Roy Halladay's career for a period from 2003 to 2011, this is from Baseball Reference, Roy Halladay threw more complete games than any other two pitchers in Major League Baseball combined and over the course of his career with the Toronto Blue Jays and the Philadelphia Phillies, 16 years, 203 wins, a 3.38 ERA. There were seasons where Roy Halladay was, I saw this comparison on Twitter yesterday, um, somebody tweeted at Dane Perry, a writer for CBS Sports, that Roy Halladay was Greg Maddox plus five miles an hour when he was at his best. That was Roy Halladay. Um, and just kind of one of those, you know, gut punch moments that we have had what feels like way too many of in recent years. Um, but Roy Halladay passes away at 40 and a guy who left his impact on the minor leagues as well. Didn't spend a ton of time in the minor leagues. He was drafted in the first round out of high school in 1995, made his major league debut three years later. Um, but there were times in his career, 2001, when he was sent back to the minor leagues to reinvent himself, um, which he did with Class A advanced in Eden, and then made the climb back up the ranks to the big leagues um, in 2001 and turned himself into one of baseball's best arms from there on throughout his career. Uh, one of only two pitchers to throw a no-hitter in the postseason, a perfect game to his name as well. A legend, and uh, Roy Halladay gone way too soon. Yeah, I, I think so much of what we do – in prospectum is talk about is somebody a number three starter versus a number four starter is he a number five starter is he a number two starter or whatever uh and they're all designations and all that kind of stuff roy halliday was an ace in the most pure form of the word um you know some of you might know i, I grew up in massachusetts so i grew up in an al east era or area uh you know, I was growing up when Halliday was with the Blue Jays, you know, the early 2000s. There were certain days you dreaded uh, 
you know, watching the Red Sox as I did growing up. And a lot of them involved Roy Halladay being on the mound for the Blue Jays. Uh, you just knew when he was on the mound, he wasn't going to throw 98. You know, he did have more velocity than a Maddox, but he, he wasn't touching triple digits like guys do now. Um, but his breaking ball was especially good. And you just felt like two hours would go by and you would look up and your team is losing 3-1. And you just knew because it was Roy Halladay on the mound. Um, you know, he was somebody who could, you could consistently count on getting seven innings out of. Um, and, and not just uh, – Fangraphs did a great story on this today. It's not because he existed in a different era as if, you know, back then we didn't trust relievers as much, so you would use your starters as long as you could, and he took advantage of that. Roy Halladay was as good the first time through the lineup as he was the second time through the lineup as he was the third time through the lineup. I think even as the fourth time through the lineup. He was just so difficult to hit and understood pitching to be the art form that it was so well that, you know, he didn't need, again, special velocity to get you out. It was sequencing. It was hitting his spots. It was all that. It was just such a craft that he had honed and made, you know, art almost. Um, it, It was, you know, when he joined the Phillies, that's some of those staffs that he was on. You know, Cliff Lee, um, Roy Oswalt, uh, Cole Hamels. You know, we just don't see rotations like that now. And, and Halliday was the guy. You know, he won a Cy Young Award with the Jays in, in 2003 and then won another one with the Phillies seven years later. You know, in a whole new league. First year with a team trying to adjust at the same time uh, in 2010. You know, he was at his peak, one of the most dominant pitchers, if not the most dominant pitcher of the 2000s. Uh, you know, he I think he's eligible for the Hall of Fame in 2019. You know, it's tough to think about that in terms of, you know, when we're recording this, it's the day after the tragedy. But if Roy Halladay isn't a Hall of Famer, then I don't know what is. Um, you know, the counting stats might not have necessarily been there. Uh, you know, he didn't crack 300 wins. It was just 203. But if you're talking about somebody who took an era and was a feared player in that era, you know, Halliday fit that to a T. Uh, and the same way he kind of took over the mantle of, of Pedro Martinez before him, um, or you know, a Johan Santana who burned out even quicker than Halliday did. Um, you know, and not only that, you know, we're mentioning all it his accomplishments on the field, but reading uh, testimonials about him, you know, off the field and how everybody who was his teammate loved him and could see how much he cared about them first um, and how that carried into, you know, his life away from the field. Uh, You know, some of the things he tweeted most, most about were coaching uh, kids in Florida and, you know, how he carried that love of the game from when he left it uh, through, you know, what, what were his last days? Uh, it, it's just heartbreaking. It, it, you know, to, to lose somebody like Roy Halladay would be heartbreaking at any time. To lose him at 40 is even more so. Um, but, yeah, it, it felt like a hole was in the, the baseball community. We don't know what, what else would have happened with his life, whether he, he could have gone into coaching or what have you. But, um, yeah, it, it – it is a time now to reflect on 
somebody who was so important for the game for as long a time. And, and, you know, he will be missed because he's no longer there to impact it like he had. Roy Halladay, an all-star with the Blue Jays in 2003 and an all-star uh, or with a Cy Young Award winner with the Blue Jays in 2003 and a Cy Young Award winner with the Phillies in 2010. He was an all-star in 03 as well. That was his second straight year as an all-star and the second of eight out of the next nine years. All but one season from 2002 through 2011, uh, Roy Halladay made an all-star team in the American League and the National League. 2004 was the lone season, which he did not. He was limited to 21 starts that year. But um, just a, a fantastic human being from all accounts. And, um, yeah, really leaves a, a void in the, the baseball world. And um, our thoughts, obviously, with Roy Halladay's family. Um, over the course of his minor league career, if you are so interested, Roy Halladay made 121 minor league appearances, including 106 starts. He compiled a 3.80 ERA, um, a 1.32 whip over that time, a 41-35 and 35 record, and made stops all over the Blue Jays system uh, and did make one start for the uh, Lakewood Blue Claws in the South Atlantic League and one with the Clearwater Threshers in the Florida State League after joining the Philadelphia Phillies organization, um, but touched countless lives in both of those systems. And uh, our thoughts are with Roy Halladay's family and with his baseball family as well. Um, yeah, uh, can I just touch yeah. on that minor league uh, story as well? Um, you know, we kind of did a quick minor league retrospective on his life yesterday after news broke. And, and one thing that stood out to me is, yeah, he was an ace, and you know he was a pretty highly ranked prospect. Uh, Baseball America, who keeps their archives for their top 100s, obviously MLB.com didn't exist uh, or have rankings when he was first coming up through the system. Uh, he was ranked number 23 at one point, number 38 at another, became the number 12 overall prospect going into 1999. Um, but as Tyler alluded to, you know, in 2001 they kicked him all the way back down to Dunedin after some rough years you know, splitting time between AAA and the majors. So as much as we like to think of minor league baseball being this linear thing, you know, you have to hit your marks. You have to go to Class A and then Class A advanced. And maybe you get put on the fast track. But once you're on that fast track, there's no going back. Uh, Halliday proved that you you can be kicked down the ladder and work your way back up, you know, whether through talent. But for him, it was a, a lot of work alone. Uh, he had some real control problems at the beginning uh, of his major league career, got those corrected in the minors. And, you know, during his most dominant days in the majors was, like you said, like a Greg Maddox-esque control artist. Uh, and that that happened in the minor league. So if you want to take something away from the story of what Roy Halladay was like as a minor leaguer, stats weren't necessarily dominant, but it was the work that he did there that made him into the true ace that he eventually became. Strike two this week. We will uh, move along to some stories on the site. Milby Awards have been announced in uh, many categories already. The best in minor league baseball in 2017. Um, what has stood out to you so far about the Milbys this year, Sam? Yeah, well, I think since we last said this two weeks ago, um, my big Milby story ran and your big Milby story ran, I think, right. Tyler. I don't think we touched on that. Um, so we'll kind of focus on that here. Uh, mine was really fun, I, I got to say. Uh, I have breakout prospect of the year, which is always fun because you get to t there's a definitive story. You know, it, it's almost like a hero's journey. There's a definite beginning. There's a rising action where the guy broke out. And then there's the question at the end of what's next and, and what is the ending of this story? So the, the story is usually pretty well laid out. But uh, as some of you might know, Ronald Acuna uh, was our pick for breakout prospect of the year. I don't think that's exactly 
controversial in any way. The fans chose Bo Bichette, uh, who obviously went from being a second-round pick passed over by many teams to becoming the minor league batting champion this year. Also a worthy pick, but Acuna going from Class A Advanced Florida to Double A Gwinnett to Triple or Double A Mississippi, excuse me, to Triple A Gwinnett, getting better at each stop, showing more power than any of us believed he had, showing tons of speed as well, uh, becoming a real five-tool prospect. Uh, his outfield defense is fantastic. He profiles as a future center fielder, has plenty of arm that he could move to right if need be, and the Braves, you know, have a Gold Glove. Uh, player in center field and Ender Ciarte, so they could certainly move him to right uh, going forward. Uh, but he's moved himself into the conversation for top overall prospect. The crux of my story was, you know, he, he did all this at 19, which is very reminiscent of another player who climbed three levels uh, at age 19, became a star outfielder for the Braves uh, at that age, and that was Andrew Jones. Andrew Jones, of course, now works in the Braves front office. He's basically a special assistant, um, which means, you know, he's around to talk to players, especially young players. He goes to spring training, checks guys out, tells his story, that kind of thing. Just generally is around. Um, but the cool thing is, you know, people love to compare Acuna to Jones, but the two of them have a relationship. Uh, I talked to Andrew Jones, which was really neat. Um, that's the type of interview we don't necessarily get in the minors. Uh, Talked to him for about 10, 15 minutes. And he said, yeah, you know, Bobby Coxford told me a couple of years ago, you're going to want to see this kid. He's going to remind you of you. It's going to be like looking into a mirror. And he said, yeah, you know, there's a, a lot to like even before this breakout came. Um, and he's constantly texting Acuna, just staying on top of him, just saying, listen, stay focused on the little things. Don't don't try to get ahead of yourself and say, like, I'm this great player now. Everything's going to be fine. You know, Jones has gone through it. He knows what it's like to move up to double A at 19. He knows what it's like to move up triple A at 19. Where their tails differ is that Jones moved up to the majors. He he got that extra kick. As much as we thought that might happen with Acuna this year, it didn't end up happening. You know, he's now in the Arizona Fall League doing incredibly well there. But it's not the major leagues. Uh, Jones played in the playoffs for the Braves. Uh, you know, was playing in the World Series for them at that time. Uh, so it's obviously different stories, but, you know, hearing him talk about that and saying like, listen, I, even I know what, what I'm doing here in, in talking to him because I still get texts from Ken Griffey Jr. And that's amazing to me, which is hilarious. Uh, Andrew Jones has a legit hall of fame case. And the fact that he says he still gets starry eyed over texts from a, a bona fide hall of famer, Ken Griffey Jr. I thought was really funny. But he says, I, I know what me reaching out is doing to him. Um, and, you know, I, I'm trying to have that influence. I'm trying to keep those channels open. And so I asked him, you know, do you see yourself in him? Uh, do you see yourself, your type of player, your potential career in him, all of your potential, uh, you know, everything you did in your career with the Braves? Do you think he can do that? And I, I love this uh, kicker quote that I used, which I, part of me wanted to kick it up higher, but I, I think it's a great note to end on, which was Jones saying, there's only one Willie Mays, there's only one Ken, Ken Griffey Jr., there's only one me, and there's only going to be one him. Yes, he shows similar potential, but he can only be one person. All I talk about with him is putting his own name out there. He came from Venezuela, and I know it's rough out there, and he's almost made it to the major leagues. He's a great, great person, and that's where I start. 
Can we have similar acts? Yes, but it's going to take a little time. Um, so, you know, the game's changing. Um, you know, how aggressive do you get with prospects this age? That's a whole debate we're having. Um, but the fact that Jones wants to play a role in making potentially his successor uh, and the next big thing, and I say that, you know, big B, big T uh, in the Braves and a big part of their rebuilding effort, I think is really cool. Uh, check out the story on the site to get more of what they thought. You know, Acuna talking about Jones and Jones talking about Acuna and also uh, thoughts from Dave Trembley, the player development director with the Braves about the whole situation and what the plan is with Acuna going forward. Um, but, yeah, breakout prospect of the year, Ronald Acuna, not a big surprise. Uh, but what happens next with him after this breakout will be incredibly uh, intriguing and one we'll be keeping eye on. Yeah, we're doing that now in the fall league, but carrying that into the spring and and uh, for going forth, how he's going to fit into the Atlanta's plans next year when I think they actually really want to be competing and don't want to just be rebuilding anymore. I had uh, best individual performance, which was a fun one because I got a chance to talk to Los Angeles Dodgers prospect DJ Peters about the night when he went yard against Madison Bumgarner, not once, but twice, and in the same inning with both of them. Um, And that was fun because I sort of opened it by saying to him, I'm sure this is not something that you think about much, but... Everybody talks about it when it comes to you. And he said, yeah, I, I hardly ever think about it. Um, but it's funny because it's like a career-defining moment so far just because that career has been so short for DJ Peters to this point. He's such a young guy. Um, but it was a fourth-round draft selection for him in 2016 by the Dodgers. He is an L.A.-area kid, went to Western Nevada Community College, gets into pro ball. 2016, he's in the Pioneer League. And then last year, he's at Rancho Cucamonga and busts out with Rancho. He's named the most valuable player in the Cal League. He's a postseason all-star in the Cal League. He was the rookie of the year in the Cal League. He was a midseason all-star as well in the Cal League. But there was this night, July 5th in San Jose, in which Rancho, the Dodgers affiliate, was going against San Jose, the Giants affiliate, and Madison Bumgarner on the way back from his injury that he suffered in April when he was riding the dirt bike and crashed. He was making his first rehab start. And DJ Peters said, you know, going into it, we felt pretty good about it. Everybody was excited. We had a good scouting report on him. And we all sort of felt like if I go 0 for 3, if I go 3 for 3, whatever happens, it doesn't matter because I'm getting a chance to face one of the best who's ever done this in baseball in Madison Bumgarner. And goes out. It's a 1-1 game through the first few innings. And then all of a sudden in the fourth – Peters belts a solo home run leading off. And then later in that inning, Peters belts another home run. And the Quakes bring home eight. And it turns into this night. It was just a groundswell on social media of like, look at what's going on in San Jose. Is Bumgarner actually still in this game? Is he actually giving up five home runs or whatever it ended up being that night? Um, and it did. And talking with DJ Peters, he said, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a neat thing for me. It showed me that I know I can do it against some of the best in baseball, but I want to do this in Los Angeles. I want to do this in San Francisco, and it serves as motivation for me in that regard that it kind of proves that I have the ability, and now I want to do that on the biggest stage. Um, but just one of those weird things that happens in minor league baseball where you get a guy who gets thrown into a moment and comes away with this lifetime moment that he's going to be able to have, um, you know, to tell his grandkids about one day, the time I went yard off a world series MVP 
twice in the same inning in high A ball. Um, and so that was really neat. The fan selection uh, for best performance was Connor Gray of Kane County, who threw a perfect game. It was the, perfect, the first perfect game in franchise history for the Kane County Cougars, and it came in his final start of 2017 on September 1st. 70 of those 100 pitches he threw for strikes, got eight strikeouts, eight outs on the ground. It was the first Midwest League perfect game in 13 years, so congratulations to Connor as well for winning the fans' choice, uh, and a congratulations to DJ Peters for winning our staff choice, but these were fun to write. The Milby stories are fun to write every year, but it's cool. I've gotten a chance to do uh, the best performance story a couple of times, and it's neat because when you talk to guys about nights that happened so long ago it's amazing when the moments are big just what their recall is and dj peters could go through every single pitch of the at-bats in which he faced bumgarner and remember i took this breaking pitch for a strike and i thought to myself now i gotta go after that the next time he throws it and then he threw me two fastballs away whatever and then finally that pitch comes back later on at the at-bat he goes after it hits a home run that recall is incredible to me and uh and it's fun getting a chance to talk to guys after everything has calmed down and they're in more of a retrospective mood um to recount what happened and what it means to them now in the retelling yeah, what one thing I love about that story too is the fact that he said, um, you know, we had a pretty good scouting report on him. That's one thing we don't think about with major yeah. leaguers making rehab. Like it's so easy to get scouting reports on those guys because you, for some of these case, some of these cases, you grew up watching them. Right. You you don't step up there like I wonder what Madison Bumgarner has. You know he's got a high nineties fastball. You know, a mid nineties, high nineties fastball. You know he's got that killer slider. Um, so you basically know what to expect, but also the fact that these, these guys are rehabbing. So they're basically just trying to make sure their parts work. So they're trying to throw strikes, um, also factors into that. But yeah, that, uh, I always enjoy reading those too. Just the fact that they can remember the little details about that kind of stuff when, you know, all these months later and all these games that have happened in between and for DJ Peters, who's still playing in the fall league. The fact that he still has to concentrate on all this kind of stuff. Uh, but that one night, I mean, it's probably a night he'll never forget anyways. But um, the fact that he can remember it in that detail is really fun. DJ Peters, by the way, when Madison Bumgarner debuted, just to give you an idea, DJ Peters was 13. So, yeah. So, yeah. Been watching him for a while. Been uh, wanting to get a chance to go against somebody like that for a while and made the most of his opportunity back in July. Uh, that's strike two. Strike three this week, Sam. We had a listener question come into the old podcast. Tell us about uh, what we're going to be discussing for Strike 3. Yeah, so uh, I got a DM uh, this this week um, from, I'm going to say it's Captain, it's CPT, uh, Luke Jenkins on Twitter, um, who said, hey, Sam, love the show. Any chance you guys could talk about Tulsa Drillers shortstop Errol Robinson? Um, love to, you know, if there's some prospect you want us to go into detail about, somebody you have a specific question about, uh, you know, a tool they have or something like that. Don't be afraid to shout it out. No question is too small or too big. Uh, if you want us to go longer on it, something like that, happy to take questions. We, we put out that request in the past. Um, so when somebody like Luke reaches out, more than happy to talk about it on the podcast. Um, he called him Tulsa Driller shortstop Errol Robinson. A lot of you might know him actually as the number 29 prospect in the Dodgers system. Uh, played 57 games for Tulsa this year. Um, so Luke is certainly not wrong that he was a Tulsa driller shortstop. Um, but really fascinating year for him. He was a sixth round pick last year uh, in 2016 out of Ole Miss. Uh, he's really a glove first player. 
um, which is why he's at kind of the bottom of the Dodgers system in terms of rankings. But he, you know, that type of uh, prospect is needed everywhere. Basically, every team needs kind of a utility infielder type, somebody who they can be sure will handle the the uh, up the middle positions in the later innings if need be. Uh, his batting profile is not quite there. He could be a potential average hitter. He hit 270 this year uh, between three levels. He started out the year at Class A Great Lakes, moved up to Class A Advanced Rancho Cucamonga, finished the year, like I said, with the Double A Tulsa Drillers. Uh, some speed there. He stole 22 bases. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's going against lower-level um, pitchers and catchers don't necessarily think he's going to be like a 20 to 25 stolen base guy going forward. He's kind of got average speed, but that glove is really good. Uh, you go to our site right now, you search for Errol Robinson highlights. The first two I found were defensive uh, highlights, one of which he's going to his right, making the catch and making a, a really strong throw, uh, no bounce deep in the hole from shortstop. The other one was a quick reaction dive to his left. Um, so he, he's got the reaction time going either which way. Uh, he's got some time at second base as well as they're trying to figure out exactly where to play him. If he can continue to be kind of a 270 hitter, um, somebody who's going to reach base at you know a, a decent clip. He had a 340 OBP. If he can kind of carry that going forward, uh, he doesn't have much power to speak of, only seven home runs and a 404 slugging percentage this year. But again, he's looking at kind of a utility infielder profile right now. Um, but to climb three levels like he did, certainly begin, whenever somebody finishes the year at double A, you think they're going to be knocking on the, the door of the majors uh, going into next year. So for him to do that one year removed from school uh, is really interesting. Just turned 23 at the beginning of October, actually on October 1st. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he is an intriguing prospect. Um, certainly not going to unseat Corey Seager uh, at shortstop in L.A. anytime soon. But the fact that. You know, they are looking at him at second base a little bit. Uh, certainly helps his case. Uh, he'll be one to watch. And the fact that he's ranked in that system should tell you something because the Dodgers system, yeah, they've had some graduations. Uh, Cody Bellinger, Corey Seager, like we mentioned. Um, but that's still a really, really strong system. Uh, and for him to go from a six-round pick, a guy taking 191st overall, to a, a ranked prospect in a, a strong system should tell you something. So... Uh, Errol Robinson, uh, as requested, you know, like I said, by uh, Luke Jenkins. Uh, if there's somebody else you want us to talk about going forward, uh, please reach out. We'd love to do it. But, yeah, Errol Robinson, go look up those videos. Can't recommend them enough. And you'll see exactly why he has the glove to stick at shortstop if need, if it's with the Dodgers or some other organization or at the very least provide plenty of value with that glove. That is strike three, and we have one foul ball for this week's edition of the show, which uh, is about a player that we may not get to discuss on the minor league side a lot, so we like discussing him right now. Shohei Otani, who has been a two-way star for uh, many years now uh, in NPB Nippon Professional Baseball in Japan. I shouldn't say many years because he's still so young, but uh, Shohei Otani has made it known he intends to move to the United States, to Major League Baseball this offseason. Uh, he has been a uh, star for the uh, Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters for the last several years. And 
carries uh, a lot of promise, whether as a pitcher or as a bat. But we don't know where he's going to land, and we don't necessarily know how he's going to land as of yet. But there is a report today from Joel Sherman in the New York Post that Major League Baseball and Nippon Professional Baseball in Japan have reached, quote, a tentative understanding to grandfather the now-expired posting system for one more year, clearing yet another hurdle to facilitate Shohei Otani coming to a Major League Baseball team this offseason. So... What that, in effect, means is there are a lot of changes that have come to the CBA as to how players can move from professional circuits internationally to join Major League Baseball and what it would mean for the money, especially given to younger players who have not been professional for the same amount of time as, say, somebody who comes over in their late 20s, early 30s, whatever. Um, the argument in Otani's favor um, – has been that he's a guy who's worth a lot of money. And the the CBA changes were in large part to try to curtail some of the money that was thrown at players who came from Cuba, um, who've gotten these massive deals. And in a lot of cases, the money spent hasn't necessarily generated much of a return and has been so out of whack with what other guys around the same age have been getting, whether it's through the draft or international amateur deals, what have you. Shohei Otani comes over this offseason and under the new rules would make substantially less money than what he would have in the the previous system. So that's what we're looking at right now. The the posting system and all the discussion in 2017 of how it would impact Otani may not impact him at all if this story is true. Yeah, so the uh there there's a lot of moving parts here. One of them was that Otani needed to sign with uh, a MLBPA or like an MLB approved agency. A union did, certified agency, basically. Right, right. And he did that by signing with CAA, which is incredibly well known. Um, so now it's a negotiation with MLB. It's a negotiation with MLBPA about how they can kind of go around those rules. Because I think like the max he could possibly make is only a couple million. It's a it's somewhere like three to five million right now under the current system because it's a hard cap, teams can't go above that. And like the Red Sox did with Yoan Mankata, you know, it was $31.5 million, and then there was a $31.5 million tax on top of that. So it ended up being $63 million uh, total investment. That's not something a team can do right now with Otani. Uh, if they were to go around that, I would love to know exactly how much he could get. It's definitely going to be in the hundreds of millions um, because, you know, his arm is so good. Uh, he is definitely going to be this top starting pitcher on the market. Um, whether it's under these rules, you know, the current underage international rules or the, uh, you know, the the rules of old uh, will be interesting to see. But technically, if he were to sign under the current system and nothing get changed, it would technically be a minor league contract, which is kind of why we're talking about this. Um, obviously, he, he signs a minor league contract. They can very quickly add him to the 40-man roster. Um, but it it would not happen immediately. Um, uh, so th we'll have to keep following this. This is breaking as we're talking. It might, this story might change uh, as you guys are listening to this over the weekend or Thursday or Friday. Um, but yeah, definitely going to keep a, an eye on this one because I think it is the most interesting baseball story of the offseason. Yeah, basically the previous deal, the way this would work if this is in fact hammered out uh, between Major League Baseball and Nippon Professional Baseball any team, any major league team that is interested in signing a posted player from 
the NPB, in this case Shohei Otani, can pony up up to $20 million for the right to negotiate with that player. And anybody who hits that maximum bid, all of those teams can then proceed to negotiate and try to sign that player. Whoever wins that negotiation, only that team would pay the posting fee of $20 million to the Nippon Ham Fighters in this case. Um, Under the new rules, Shohei Otani, because he's 23, would be subject to the international signing pools, regulations, and the cap, as Sam noted. Um, So in this story from the New York Post, uh, teams, according to uh, figures reported by the AP, this story says, quote, teams currently have anywhere from $10,000 to the $3.53 million of the Texas Rangers. Uh, to sign, uh, as far as a bonus goes, Shohei Otani. So it is, yeah, a very complex story, but something that, in effect, means a lot more money changing hands if it's grandfathered in under the previous system to accommodate Shohei Otani for this offseason. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting thing to watch uh, going forward and whether or not Major League Baseball does get to that agreement um, with Nippon Professional Baseball. And so... It looks like we'll see Shohei Otani in the big leagues in 2018. That in itself is exciting enough. Um, So that'll do it for this week's edition of Three Strikes and our One Foul Ball. And uh, we will head to actual baseball work being done. And some of that is being done by the now top-ranked prospect in the Kansas City Royals organization, Nick Prado, who will join the show, getting set for his first full year in pro ball, coming out of the draft in 2017. We'll talk about his debut season and getting ready for 2018 and a whole lot more next. Well, the first minor league offseason is underway for a lot of prospects around the game of baseball. One of those guys is the now top-ranked prospect in the Kansas City Royals organization, Nick Prado, who joins the show for the first time, 14th overall selection back in June. Nick, welcome. How's the offseason treating you so far? It's going great. Uh, Just really laid back and getting my work done and uh, having fun with it. Well, you got a chance... As a California guy, you got to go to the rookie level AZL for your debut season. Um, you don't have to travel too far away from home, and you kind of get the the first summer under your belt, learning at the complex, which is always a nice um, you know way to get acclimated to pro ball. Take us through you know from the draft in June, you play 52 games your debut season. Now here you are in November. What have the last six months been like for you? Um, it feels like feels like a year. <laughs> you know, it's it's gone by. <laughs> Gone by fast, but if, looking back on it, it feels like a lot of time has gone by. But, uh, you know, it's a lot of learning experiences have come and gone, and uh, I'm happy to bring those into the offseason to make my game better. Overall this year, um, like I said, 52 games, you bat 247, 330, 414. When you get started in pro ball, I mean, it's such a whirlwind those first few weeks, drafted, signed, you get sent to Arizona, get acclimated with everybody, with the staff, with the complex, all that kind of stuff. How long do you think it felt until it took until you felt like you sort of had a routine, you kind of knew what you were doing from day to day in the AZL? It took me, it took me about a month, you know, uh, to really, like, have a concrete idea of what I was doing. And, uh, I mean, at first I would just kind of go out there and play like I normally would. But, you know, you got got to do little things, take care of your body, take care of the little aches and pains you got and the little uh, things that creep into your approach and your swing. So, you know, that's that's kind of what comes with it. So that's how I had to learn. Yeah, and what do you think was the biggest thing you learned about pro ball? I mean, obviously high school players, they talk about just playing every day. That's That's new. That's different. Um, the fact that this is your one job now, that's new, that's different, that whole thing. 
Um, you know, but in terms of making adjustments and, and facing new arms, that kind of stuff, what, what do you think was the biggest learning moment for you? Just staying, staying patient, staying within myself. Um, I mean, uh, early on, I chased a lot of balls out of the zone, a lot of off-speed pitches that I normally wouldn't swing at, possibly because I was anxious. But, you know, it was, it was just me learning my approach again and coming in and uh, hitting what I can handle, really, and not going too far outside the box. And now you are starting, you know, your first professional offseason. Last year, right, right about now, you'd probably be in class. You wouldn't be doing this interview with us. Uh, yeah. Know, <laughs> what, what is the biggest change for you now, and what kind of program do the Royals have you on, or do they have you on any program, uh, or are you just kind of going alone? Um, what has this offseason been like so far, getting used to just this is your day job now? Uh, I mean, it's just like I normally would. I mean, instead of school, I'm going to the gym and working out and then going straight to the field and working on my game. You know, it's, it's baseball school, if that makes any sense. But, you know, it's um, the Royals have me lifting and doing all the things I need to be doing. Do you have, like, anything you're specifically focusing on, uh, you know, as you gear up to what, what's probably going to be – well, it definitely is going to be your first spring training, but then your first full season after that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to put on a little more weight. Uh, I lost a little bit towards the end of the season last year, and uh, I think uh, after instructional league, I put some weight back on, and I feel like I'm in a good spot right now. And uh, uh, getting ready for my first full season, so I need my body to be ready for the long haul. Nick, one of the things that uh, people say about your game, you draw some comparisons to Joey Votto. I know this past summer, 10 picks ahead of you goes Brendan McKay out of Louisville, kind of a similar profile first baseman. Also similar in that is that you pitched as well. He was kind of viewed as a two-way guy. You for a little while were viewed as a two-way guy. Coming into the draft, it looked like the position player side was going to carry the day for you. But did you ever give thought you know, prior to the draft, back when you were in your later days in high school, of maybe trying to give that a shot, being somebody who could work in the field and on the mound in pro ball? Um, I mean, early on in high school, everybody considered me as a pitcher over hitter. And it was just kind of like I went and hit because I loved to hit. And then once I started taking hitting really seriously, it, it took off for me. And I mean, towards the end of high school, my junior, senior year, I pitched because I loved to pitch and just because I was competitive and I wanted to win ball games. But hitting has always been my number one priority and just what I love to do. And uh, I never really considered going into the draft as a pitcher. Who did you look up to as ball players when you were younger? I mean, being a California guy, you're in a, a hotbed of places where you can drive and watch any big leaguer almost any time. But who who did you emulate when you were a kid? Oh, I mean, all kinds of guys. I used to do the the Nomar Garcia Parra foot shuffle when I was <laughs> little. Uh, I had the I had the hands over my head like Vladdy when I was little. I mean, all kinds of stuff. But I mean, once I started getting really serious about baseball, I really watched guys like. Joey Votto and Anthony Rizzo and watching their approach, how patient they are waiting to do damage on their pitch. That's, that's what I want to uh, kind of work into my game. Well, if you're going to put it that way, you are now a pro baseball player. Uh, the dream is that someday kids will be taken after you. What is the trademark thing you hope kids are doing on the, the ball fields back in Huntington beach uh, mimicking you when that time comes? I mean, just being a complete ball player, you know, I mean, defense, offense, in the clubhouse, uh, being a good teammate, I mean, that's all you can ask for, you know. You, 
you're paid to win championships, not to do anything for yourself necessarily. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I hang around the high school a lot and talk to some of the kids and they're all, they're all motivated too. So it's, it's fun, fun to be around. And I'm sure you have lots of stories to tell, not only, you know, being a first round pick, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this next winning a, a little league world series, not only winning, winning a little league world series, but being the guy to walk off from that. What is it like having that experience? And then all the international success that's followed for you, you know, working with team USA on the 18 and under team and on traveling teams that go across the world. Um, you know, what is having that level of team success for you at such a young age? How did that help you uh, going into, you know, what eventually became a pro career? Um, I mean, those experiences, I mean, th those were some of the best times of my life, you know, and uh, being away from home at such a young age and kind of doing more of that as my uh, amateur career went on. And it was, uh, it really got me ready for kind of the, the grind or whatever, people say and uh i mean the, the the transition to the life of a professional baseball player hasn't been very tough for me just because uh, i'm used i'm used to working every day and getting better so it's it's it got me started in a good spot yeah and how many at bats have you had where you thought you know this seems like a tight spot but at least it's not in front of a big national audience like that little league world series game oh no i mean I've never really compared at bats to each other, you know, I mean, every at bat is a different experience. So it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It's, they're all very unique and a lot of times they have similarities, but I've never really thought back to that moment and said that uh, anything was like it. Cause nothing will ever be like that. Nick, speaking of, you know, kind of getting a taste of what it's like to be a big leaguer, back in September, you got a chance to take part in uh, in Futures Night at Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City where you and a, a bunch of draft picks from 2017 got to take in not only the Royals game, but you got to go to, uh, you know, do some community service stuff. I think you went to the Negro Leagues Museum. What was that whole experience like? Kind of take us through what that process was for all you guys to sort of get to know each other and see what things could be like one day in Kansas City. Yeah, that was my that was my second time going to Kansas City, and first the first time the fans were awesome, and the second time they were even better. And I mean, getting to meet new guys throughout the organization and guys that could possibly be up pretty soon, that was that was really special. And giving back to the community is always something that I look forward to, just because it's such a great fan base in Kansas City. So um, I mean, it was it was awesome just being around even the MLB guys and kind of picking their brains a little bit but um yeah i mean everybody was tight-knit group and we all got to know each other pretty well and we saw each other at instructs the week after so it was pretty cool to be a part of and uh when, after you were drafted uh, or even before you were drafted what did you know about the royals you know the couple years ago five five years ago um obviously they were known for a team that was building through youth building through guys who had been in the system for a long time you're starting that journey now. Um, but what did you know about the organization before getting drafted and, and what has maybe been changed or what have you learned since becoming part of the organization? Um, I mean, I've always known that the Royals have been a tight knit group and they're very player development, uh, build from within kind of oriented. And I mean, that, that was pretty spot on. And uh, I mean, they're, they're building a family here and they're trying to win with their own stuff which is, I think is very, very awesome to be a part of. And, uh, I mean, 
everything that I've learned since I've heard nothing but good things before, but like now it's awesome to just to like be a part of it and see it all like unravel as we go. And this is some, this is like a different stage in the, in the Royals kind of era after everybody's kind of leaving, but yeah, it should yeah. be, it should be fun. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because obviously this is a very important offseason for the Royals. Hosmer's a free agent, Kane's a free agent, Alcides Escobar is a free agent. Um, you know, who knows who will be back? I'm sure they'll try to sign some of them. Mike Moustakis, another one. Um, but how much are are you looking at the major league landscape? I know you're probably a couple of years away, but are you looking at that and figuring out where there are holes that could be and how you could see yourself plugging in in a couple of years? Or do you feel like major league situation is too far away to even look at yet? Uh, I mean, it's always, it's always interesting to look at what's happening at the big league level. And uh, obviously Hosmer and Kane and Moustakis are all possibly on their way out. But I mean, it's, I have, I have some, some time to go and uh I'm, for me like as a spot opening up i'm not i'm not too concerned i mean i can play first i can play outfield it doesn't really matter as long as i'm in the lineup doing a job so it doesn't really bother me too much nick take us through a day in the life in the azl last year what are your i mean when you get into pro ball and you find a routine do you have any you know pre-game rituals things that you do when you you start to get loose get ready for a game the azl schedule is so different because you guys play day games so often which isn't what you'll find you know coming up next season and beyond uh in full season ball but how when you get to the ballpark you get set for a game what are your routines what are your rituals um, we actually played seven o'clock games in the AZL, but oh, was, okay. Uh, then I just made everything up. Never yeah. mind. <laughs> no, I mean we. I mean I'd I'd wake up at about nine or ten, go get some breakfast, get something in me to get the day started, and then uh, get back to the hotel and get ready to go to the field at about uh, one ish. Yeah, one. And then uh, once I get there, get all my. Uh, work done in the training room if I if I'm sore somewhere from lifting or whatever and then uh, usually I get my lifting from about 1.30 to 2.30 eat maybe a little in between and then uh, early work starts and then you go straight from early work out to the field for practice back in at about 4-ish yeah 4 or 5 and then uh, you got a little break between then and your game, so a lot of time, a lot of downtime to uh, get focused and get ready for the game. Uh, get back to the hotel at eleven, sometimes midnight. And, and as you're again. going going through that whole process, um, I, I know you mentioned before talking about felt like you were chasing pitches a little bit more. But what do you feel like was something you learned about your game, or something that you feel like? needs the most improvement and something you're focusing on now, you know, when you are doing those afternoon sessions on the field or what have you, um, you know, what, what is the focus on in terms of what improvements you need to make to make the, the jump going forward? I mean, as far as the work I've been doing in the off season, um, was getting back on plan with the baseball and, and my swing and, um, just trying to do more damage with my swing and, uh, I mean, I miss I missed some balls just because I felt my swing was a little too direct, if that makes sense. And uh, I think staying on plane will be a good adjustment to keep me through the zone and um, on the baseball longer. 
get more barrel. But um, other than that, uh, I mean, chasing pitches, I mean, that was something that I struggled with at first, but really it was just a, an approach of knowing that I'm going to get a lot of change-ups and just being patient and waiting for the fastball. All right, well, we'll leave you on this one. Uh, we usually try to leave on a, a little bit of a fun note. Um, you know, looking at your MLB pipeline profile, it starts out with this sentence. Prado won the 2011 Little League World Series with a walk-off single against Japan, which we touched on. Defeated Japan again as a starting pitcher to help the United States capture the 18 and under World Cup in 2015. So the question is, do you feel like you're a villain in Japan? Have you caught any wind of being a Japanese villain or something like that uh, over your time in baseball so far? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, they got us, they got us some cool play when we played in Japan. Uh, they beat us two to one, but, um, you know, it's, it's funny cause people ask me that quite a bit and it doesn't like, I haven't heard anything or seen anything <laughs> like that, but haven't I gotten any got hate tweets mail, but... Japanese or anything. No, no, no. But I actually got fan mail from someone from Japan. And it was funny because I, I opened it up. I opened it up and he, he like mentioned like hearing about me playing Osaka. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, they like their fans were so genuine. They they cheered for either team. They just wanted to watch good baseball. So that was that was really fun to, to uh, be around there. So. Just saying, baseball goes back in the Olympics in 2020. USA Baseball has generally sent over top prospects. Eh, it could be a possibility. And they're in yeah. Tokyo. So, you know, we already have the – everybody knows the secret weapon, secret weapon for USA Baseball in case there's like a gold medal match coming up. Nick's on that roster. Things look pretty good for the United States. Uh, Nick Prado, you could find on Twitter. Um, he is there at N underscore Prado. And, Nick, thanks a ton for giving us some time, man, and congratulations on uh, the start to the pro career. Enjoy the rest of the offseason, and uh, we'll be seeing you in spring training. Yeah, thank you very much. Take care. Again, a big thanks to Nick Prado of the Kansas City Royals for joining us on Twitter. He is at N underscore Prado. And with that, we will move along to uh, talk with Benjamin Hill. Unfortunately, this week, um, not just one remembrance, talking about Roy Halladay and uh, our first strike today, but uh, second remembrance as we um, look back on the life of a legendary minor league performer, Rick Hader, the uh, actor and live performer who performed as Myron Noodleman, a clown prince of baseball, that honor bestowed on him one of the the real legendary accolades you could receive as a minor league uh, entertainment personality. He passed away this past week um, after a battle with a rare form of sinus cancer at 59 years old. And Benjamin Hill is here to um, discuss his impact and kind of his legacy um, in the minor league baseball community. Ben, there are, there are these guys, uh, there are men and women who travel around the minor leagues. They perform these legendary acts. They become kind of cult heroes in the minors. And Myron Noodleman started performing at minor league ballparks in 1995 um, and really has been ubiquitous across the scene of minor league baseball over the last couple of decades. Uh, yeah, he really has. I mean, I, he started that character, the Myron Noodleman character, you know, who's kind of a uh, ultra nerd and uber nerd uh, in the Groucho Marx, uh, Jerry Lewis, nutty professor kind of vibe. Um, you know, he developed the character in the early 90s, probably did actually some of his first minor league uh, performances. He's a Tulsa guy. So I think he did, you know, local stuff at, uh, at colleges and universities and uh, with the Tulsa drillers. Um, but went to the 19, he de- developed the character enough, uh, got an agent, 
uh, a Tulsa-based guy named John Terry. And uh, they went to the 1994 winter meetings. And, uh, you know, Myron Noodleman, uh, or Rick Hader, a.k.a., he went, he went to the trade show, the winter meetings, uh, in full Myron Noodleman character, uh, didn't really stay at his booth, worked the aisles. And, uh, you know, they came away with dozens of bookings. And the next year he realized, hey, I can do this full time. Um, you know, so he uh, quit his teaching job that he had in, in uh, Tulsa area high school as a math teacher and uh, then spent a uh, better part of 15, 16, 17 years just being Myron Noodleman full time and eventually did go back to teaching. But, uh, you know, a real unique career story. And, uh, you know, minor league baseball in a lot of ways is one of the last bastions for these type of uh, performers and these type of characters, this more, uh, you know, vaudeville, uh, more vaudeville in nature. Um, so a really sad story to see him, uh, you know, pass away far too young. It was just last week that a GoFundMe page was established uh, for Rick Hader, aka Myron Noodleman, um, detailing, you know, his his cancer, a rare form of sinus cancer. You know, it's just, I mean, who knows? You can't, you don't know what to predict in life, but that's uh, just such a, a a horrible thing to get hit with. And uh, so I was monitoring monitoring the GoFundMe page, you know, tweeting out the link. And then uh, within four or five days after that page appeared, he died. And uh, I, I hadn't realized, and I think a lot of people hadn't realized, you know, just in the minor league world at large, uh, just how sick he had gotten. And uh, the outpouring of, you know, grief and love uh, for him was pretty overwhelming. And I think a real testament to just how much joy he brought fans at ballparks literally all over the country uh, for the better part of two decades. And what are some of the... Like what made him special? You you talked about how he was kind of like a nutty professor, but um, you know what was his act like? Why do you think it caught on as well as it did? Because like you said, there really aren't that many vaudeville, uh, you know, type acts anymore. It's it's not like there's a huge appetite for that, but there definitely was for him. Right. Well, you know, I talked to a couple people for the story I wrote about him on milb.com, and uh, and you know, I saw this uh, affirmed on Twitter as well. Um, you know, he did a between inning routines. You know, he would always recruit players to dance with him. ZZ Top's um, Sharp Dressed Man was his signature tune. But one of the things that really made him stand out as a performer, and I think maybe where people ultimately will remember him most, is that when the game was going on, he would do crowd work you know, relentless crowd work and try to make his way through the entire ballpark, you know, interacting, you know, not one-on-one -on -one with every fan, but interacting with every section, every group um, as much as possible and doing a lot of his signature routines. Again, I was talking to John Terry, his agent, who said one of uh, his favorite Myron routines was he'd have a uh, paper bag and then throw up an invisible ball and then make a snapping sound with the bag to make it seem like the ball just landed in the bag. And then he'd give the invisible ball to a kid who and get the kid to throw him the invisible ball. And he'd look up real high in the air as if the kid had a great arm. And, you know, then, bam, make the sound as if the ball landed in the bag. Then he'd pick out a big, strong guy and give him the invisible ball. And then he'd just look down at his feet like the guy was, like, so weak that he couldn't even throw the invisible ball to the bag. If all this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, clowning. like It's clowning. And he was um, – it's not official, not recognized by the Hall of Fame – but at a uh, business seminar, uh, Fun is Good, hosted by Mike Veck, um, Roland Hemond, uh, a legendary executive scout, done all things, uh, all sorts of things in the uh, in the game of baseball. You know, bestowed upon him the Clown Prince of Baseball title. You know, inheriting it from uh, 
Max Patkin. So that's an actual thing, right? Well, it's, it's not, it, it became a thing because, you know, Mike Vec's father, Bill Vec, was kind of the guy who bestowed that title upon Max Patkin. So they kind of made it as official as they could. But, you know, what constitutes official in the bestowing of the clown prince honorarium? I mean, that's actually a serious question. I, um, I feel like the king of baseball, whoever it is that year, should be the one <laughs> bestowing it upon somebody. Right, right. Um, so it is not, again, like it's not in the Hall of Fame. It's not like a MLB sanctioned or designation, but um, it's certainly, uh, you know, something that he was recognized for. And I think it's important to realize that. And, you know, I led my story with that saying baseball's lost another clown prince um, because there aren't too many performers doing this anymore. You know, we still see touring performers, obviously. Superstars are certainly the ones I've crossed paths with the most and you know, the inflatable mascots. And you see guys like Mad Chad juggling chainsaws or Rubber Boy. I haven't seen him too too recently, but, you know, he can. Uh, he's a contortionist. But uh, the clowns, you know, doing these, uh, you know, kind of silent movie-style sketches – um, are not uh, certainly a dying breed, and uh, you know, in this era of entertainment, ballpark entertainment, just but just entertainment and culture, with video boards and smartphones and uh, every you know wireless this and wireless that, um, it's just kind of a simple mode of entertainment that is. Um, I'm not sure who's really carrying that torch anymore. So it's sad to see someone like Rick Hader go. Um, I mean, it's, it's tragic in any sense, but certainly that what he represented is something that uh, is not really prevalent on the baseball stage anymore, but it has a long tradition. So our thoughts, obviously, with the uh, the family of Rick Hader and uh, a lot of minor league teams across the landscape, I'm sure we'll be paying tribute to him in the 2018 season. I know the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, a team with whom he performed for many, many years, are already kind of kicking ideas around uh, in Ben's story as to how they will honor Myron Noodleman and Rick Hader, the performer who portrayed that character for so many years of minor league baseball. They'll honor him in 2018. Um, let's move on to some uh, baseball news in terms of franchises, affiliates, parent clubs. We've discussed this over the last few weeks. Major league organizations have started getting, it seems like, a little bit more involved in purchasing minor league affiliates. This kind of is a a cyclical thing. For so long in the early days of baseball, major league teams owned minor league clubs. Then throughout the renaissance of minor league baseball, independent ownership groups turned minor league clubs into big money makers. Now major league teams are starting to get some of those assets back under their own control. Um, Syracuse, obviously the big news, uh, the New York Mets purchased the Syracuse Chiefs. That will become the Mets AAA affiliate in 2019. But there are several other organizations that have done similar things uh, in recent years. And over this offseason, the Carolina Mudcats and Milwaukee Brewers have purchased them. Um, ben, what is the, the trend here? And does it seem like this is something that's becoming more and more common? Uh, it's definitely becoming more and more common, but I think it is important to stress that, you know, of 160 teams and then really taking away the Appy League where all the teams are uh, owned by the major league club, that's a slightly different world. So say of the 150 remaining minor league teams, I forget the exact number, but it's really only something like 15 or 16 that are owned by the parent club. But that number has, um, you know, certainly been increasing in recent years and it seems like it'll continue to increase. Um, but it is certainly a distinct minority still in the uh, minor league landscape. But uh, as you mentioned, yeah, the Mudcats are now owned by the Brewers. So the Brewers now own their Class A advanced affiliate. Mets own their AAA affiliate or their upcoming AAA affiliate, the uh, Syracuse Chiefs, starting in 2019. 
the Rangers uh, last month bought their Class A team, the Hickory Crawdads. So now the Rangers own Class A and Class A Advance, both in the state of North Carolina. Uh, now they own Class A Hickory. They also own Class A Advanced, uh, who are currently um, the Down East Wood Ducks playing in Kinston, North Carolina. And, uh, you know, the, the benefits of this, I mean, obviously it is an investment that uh, a lot of teams might not be willing to make, major league clubs. But the advantages are, you know, every two years or four years at the end of the conclusion of an even numbered season, you know, we have the affiliate dance, the affiliate shuffle, and we always are going to see, you know, suboptimal relationships occur as a result of that because uh, there's only so many uh, matches to go around. And, you know, we always use the analogy of, you know, whatever closing time at the bar or whatever have you. Sometimes you just have to, uh, you know, settle for whoever's left. And, um, so by buying your major league team, you take that uncertainty out of the equation. You, you know, the Mets, their AAA club had been Vegas. It was uh, New Orleans before that, um, or not right before that, but in, in recent years. And, uh, you know, that's not good. Your AAA team, you want proximity for one, and you want a good, um, a good facility. But it, certainly at the AAA level, you want proximity because you're going to have a lot of call-ups and people sent down and sent back up. And, uh, you know, if you're a, a, an East Coast team and you're a – AAA affiliate is on the West Coast, you know, playing in Tacoma or where have you, you know, that could be a problem for getting that guy uh, up to the big league club as soon as possible. So uh, if a major league club buys uh, the minor league club proximity and uh, amenities and the stadium, you know, they, they can uh, devote more money to stadium resources or buy a team that has a stadium, which they are happy with in terms of the player amenities. And uh, you take a lot of uncertainty out of the equation in terms of who you just might hang, uh, end up with uh, as your affiliate, because as I said before, those relationships are, are subject to change and, and often do. Well, what about from the business side, though? Because obviously, you know, some clubs make more money than others. Some clubs are more successful than others. But, you know, it seems like the trend of minor league baseball is that there is more money to be made there than in, in years past. What about this just being a straight up business investment? Is that part of the deal or is it strictly, you think, player development driven? I think that's a good question. And I think like any investment, um, no matter what the ult ultimate motive, you want to make money off of that. Um, and certainly the parent clubs that do buy their affiliates, you know, you see them generally operating those teams like you would a normal minor league team. Um, you're not just going to stop paying attention or not care or just write it off. Um, and in a lot of cases, as I think will be the case in Syracuse, um, you know, pre-existing front office staff in a lot of cases does stay on. Um, that's sometimes not the case. But I think you'll see the teams be run more or less as minor league teams uh, with a profit motive. But I certainly don't think the motivating factor from the MLB side is to squeeze out whatever profit they can from running a minor league team as opposed to having just more overall control of the farm system. I mean, they're certainly not mutually exclusive things, but I would think the player development concerns would certainly trump the uh, any economics incentive beyond that. Ben, we've had at Milby Awards uh, over the last few weeks on the site. Your version of the Milby's, the Busy Awards, will be coming up in 2017. And uh, a lot of stuff coming to the blog. Give us a preview of what's on tap for you. Yeah, you know, I'm still in recap mode here. It's uh, October and November. Kind of tough tough months for new material a lot of time. So look uh, on Thursday on the site for the fourth annual Busy Awards. That's B-I-Z-Z-I-E, named after myself, Ben's Biz. And that's just an excuse for me to make up literally – um, named after myself, all, <laughs> all business. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I control this world. I mean, <laughs> I, when people think business and they obviously they, they think me. Benjamin Hill. That's true. Yeah, yeah. this is your middle name. That is true. It's true. Um, I made up these year uh, these awards a couple years ago, and I change the categories every year, and it's just a way to highlight unique and absurd things around the miners. Um, you know, hopefully in a fun and uh, fast-paced fashion. And over on the blog, I've had two real comprehensive um, you know, recap posts with highlight videos for those who like moving images. Um, one uh, with every single designated eater I had this year. You know, The designated eaters are, of course, the individuals uh, tasked with consuming the ballpark cuisine that my gluten-free diet prohibits. I meet them on the road all season long. So there's a post featuring highlights of them, the food they ate, and uh, links to each individual post, along with, of course, plenty of food pictures and what have you. And uh, also a post on the blog uh, just detailing all my travels with links to blog posts and articles from literally every single stop. And uh, putting that together was a little tedious, but it made me uh, feel good about myself because in the offseason, it's easy to be like, oh, things are slow and I don't have a purpose anymore. So kind of seeing what I just did during the season, I was like, man, this is a great body of work and you're really doing a good job. All kinds of stuff up on the site and up on the blog right now. Um, you can check out Ben's remembrance of Myron Noodleman on the site. The batting around column, in addition to the the story about um, parent clubs purchasing affiliates, has a lot of updates on other teams, including Huntsville, um, some stuff in the Florida State League. The Potomac were forever working on a new ballpark. Nationals have signed yet another lease extension in Fitzner Stadium that will go through 2020. Um, and an update on a possible situation in Boise, which has been rolling roiling for a while. So a lot of stuff in batting around. Good stuff as always, Ben. We'll talk to you next week. I look well, no no, you know what? No. Oh, what? <laughs> we won't? What is this? No, it is not been good. No, 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 no. It's been good talking to you, but uh, I'm gonna go on vacation, so I want all oh. our loyal listeners to know that well, you're gonna be without mind. me for a little bit. Um tweet all your uh thoughts on uh my absence and Forget uh it. and the uh gaping hole in your lives that will be left by not being able to read my new blog posts and uh tweets and articles. Uh, let me know at Ben's Biz. I'll come back from vacation and, and feel missed and loved, and that's the most important thing. I retract the we'll talk to you next week then. We won't. Enjoy your vacation. Thank you. Well, it is not often that we have breaking news uh, come across during a recording of a show, but um, as we got set to finish things off with this final segment, we uh, just saw the news on Twitter that Boston Red Sox catching prospect Daniel Flores passed away at 17 years old on Wednesday um, due to complications from cancer. That's according to uh, the Boston Globe, citing team president and CEO Sam Kennedy. Flores had been in Boston receiving treatment. Um, this story came out pretty early this morning. Again, we're recording this on Wednesday, and it, there was not a lot known. Um, WEEI in Boston had reported that Flores was in Boston dealing with, quote, a serious medical condition that could impact his 2018 season. And uh, this is the the news that has come out this afternoon um, and just as crushing as – uh, as anything could be, um, Flores was the fifth-ranked prospect in the Boston Red Sox organization. He was just signed in July, and um, it is this is a heartbreaker. Yeah, I, I, you know, our jobs here are to tell you what kind of prospect Flores was and what kind of major leaguer he could have been, but uh, all that matters was he was 17. Um, it just it rips your heart out. There's really, 
no matter what at that age, your life is filled with potential, whether it's baseball or otherwise. And, um, you know, to, to have this happen as, as quickly as it has, at least news of it, um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. Our, our thoughts are obviously with, you know, Flora's family and his friends and everybody that knew him. Um, yeah, there's no other word than devastating, uh, for this. And, um, yeah, by, by the time you've, you'll, you guys will be getting this podcast. I'm sure there will be other news about what type of cancer and what he had been struggling with and all that. But right now it just matters that a, a life was cut way too short. And, um, yeah, it's just very, very sad. And, um, yeah, thoughts, thoughts out to the family and, uh, friends and everybody who knew Daniel Flores. Daniel Flores was signed in July out of Venezuela. He was uh, ranked as the number two overall prospect on the international market going into the signing period um, that closed on July 2nd and um, just a, a heartbreaker. And uh, unfortunately, we have had to talk about that a lot today. And, um, you know, holidays are coming up. Um, when you think about the large scheme of things, baseball doesn't really play that big of a role. So if there's somebody that you love that you haven't talked to in a while, um, pick up the phone and shoot a text or give a call or do a FaceTime or do whatever. Um, because you never know, man. Um, we don't really realize on a day to day basis, just how inconsequential so much of life is. And then when something consequential happens, like losing a Roy Halladay, or losing a, a Daniel Flores, it's it kind of jars you into remembering what should be important. And um, you know, we don't we don't get too moral on the podcast very often. But uh, go tell somebody you love that you love them. Yeah, and, and I'll start that here. Um, you know, set the example, uh, Tyler. I'm I'm grateful for every time we get to do this. Um, here, I'm great. I'm grateful for everybody out there who listens and reaches out and. Um, you know, listens to us go on about, about this stuff every week. Um, you know, hopefully we'll be back next week with happier news and, um, back to talking about, you know, AFL games and the AFL wrapping up and all that kind of stuff and stuff that takes away from life, but sometimes life takes precedent. And, uh, today is one of those days. So, um, you know, never forget all that we have in life and try to take advantage of it while we can and acknowledge what we do have when we do have it. Um, so yeah, starting now, grateful for Tyler, grateful for all of you. Uh, and we'll get back to, to what feels normal, hopefully soon. Feeling is mutual, man. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mon. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate all you guys. We'll talk to you next week. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it 
in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.